This passage for this morning comes from a very, very long section of, uh, this, of this book of Acts, a, a section I think the reason it's longer is because Luke, who wrote this, as well as the Gospel of Luke, was accompanying Paul on this part of the journey, so he knew a whole lot more details, and I think he also, uh, along with being a physician, was also someone who cared a lot about seafaring, about what it means to be in a boat on the sea. So he writes with a great deal of detail about this journey, about these journeys that they take um, as Paul is going from Jerusalem where he was, the trial started, but then he appealed to Caesar, so he's on his way to Rome where he has a deep sense of call to share the gospel there, but also he will be appearing before Caesar to, um, for Caesar to determine uh, the level of guilt he has regarding Roman law. And in this passage, they're sailing along, trying to get where they're going, and the ship, well, it doesn't happen in this section, but we know it's going to. The ship runs aground. Here uh, now, and follow along this section beginning at verse 9 of chapter 27 of the book of Acts. They had already been in port for a time, and much time had been lost, and now they're trying to get out onto the Mediterranean again. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because it was now after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we would sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driving, driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard, and then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground to the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, and with ne when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and this loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because it is not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of, the, of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This story reminds me, you know, in a much, it's a much grander scale than my experience, which is quite similar on a much, much 
smaller scale, of a time when I knew that I was, within, I was in God's will. I knew that I, I had just come from a conference. I had just uh, been really challenged and in my walk with God and, and really humbled and trying to follow God closely. And so much so that as I drove away from this conference in Chicago back home to Minnesota, I obeyed the speed limits. <laughs> it's funny to Devin. Um, but no, seriously, I was, I was trying to be good. I was listening to Christian music. I was praying. I was cultivating my relationship with God. And I was sure that because I was cultivating my relationship with God in a much stronger way than normal, everything would go perfectly well on this trip. I got behind a slow truck, and I started to pass it, but then... Well, I started to pass on the right, which I think is legal in Illinois. Anyway, um, and, and there was a police car had someone pulled over in the, on the shoulder, so I veered right back over immediately into the center lane where I had been behind this slow truck. And the police officer who was sitting there let this other person go, whether he was finished with them or not, I don't know, but followed me, turned on the lights, and pulled me over. I really didn't know that I had done anything wrong. And he said, you coming from the city? And I said, yes. He goes, well, in the city, people drive like that. But you pulled back over too quickly, and I'm going to give you a ticket. And you know what I did? I did what all good pastors would do. I pulled the card. And I said, well, okay, well, I'm a pastor coming from a, a pastor's conference. And, and he goes, yeah, my brother-in-law's a pastor. He drives too fast, too. <laughs> and I got the ticket. And my initial response was to wonder, am I wrong about being within God's will? Am I wrong about having a new sense of connectedness with God? Because something bad happened to me. Something I don't even think was fair. And when you read this passage, you see that this is not abnormal. This is, in fact, the norm. Although many of us build our lives on the idea that if I do enough good, if I'm faithful enough, if I behave well enough, then God will lay everything out just perfectly, that my life will be a life of ease, my life will be a life where everything makes sense, where everything falls into place. Scripture tells us a different story. Paul is assured that he will end up in Rome. He knows that he is within God's plan. God guided him to claim or to appeal to Caesar at his trial, knowing that that would get him to Rome. He knew that this was the right path, and yet the ship is in peril. And as we move into the next verses, the next chapter, the ship does run aground, the ship is shattered, the cargo is lost, but all of the crew, all of the prisoners on board, everyone is saved and spends time on this island. The lesson we learn is that the Christian life is not trouble-free. We should already know this because Jesus said to his disciples as he was preparing for his own crucifixion, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, 
I have overcome the world. He was assuring them that as they remain faithful, they will still have troubles come to them. Their life will not necessarily be easy. In fact, it will necessarily carry difficulties. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 writes this. Sorry, I think it's 2 Corinthians. Yes. Paul describes his life. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods since once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from the false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches, Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? Paul is, in this passage, comparing himself to some false prophets who have come into the city, and in order to prove his genuine apostleship, lists not his victories, but his challenges. He says that it is by his challenges that he proves his faithfulness to God. How often do we think that way for ourselves? How often do we think, well, I must be being faithful because it's getting challenging. More often, I think, we say, well, I thought God wanted me to do this, but it's getting a little hard, so he must not want this, right? The opposite is true. In this world, we will have trouble. But Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And the same Paul, in the same letter, who wrote about all his trials and struggles, wrote this. In chapter 4, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but is what, what is unseen is eternal. One of my very favorite verses, because it is on this verse that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, The Weight of Glory, one of my favorite favorite essays, one of my favorite pieces of literature, and that concept of the weight of the glory of God uh, inspired Augustine to say it is um, that our souls are restless until they find their rest in God. It inspired the great um, church leaders throughout history to, to understand what it is to have the, this vision of glory before us. But he also says we suffer light and momentary afflictions. Now, if you've been to a funeral that I've led, I usually speak of this passage and I usually say, what? 
light and momentary afflictions, especially if those who are gathered there have suffered a great loss. Some of them after years of decline, watching their loved one decline. And most of us would agree that there are seasons in our lives when it would be offensive to label our struggles light. And there are long seasons of life where we carry the same burden, where we would find it offensive to call our afflictions momentary. But Paul says, all our afflictions are light and momentary. And it's the same Paul who in the same book lists all of those things those shipwrecks, those stonings, those floggings, those imprisonments, those times of being pursued by all kinds of people so much so that it almost sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. I've been pursued on the sea, pursued on the land, pursued in the country, pursued in the city. Paul has not had an easy life and great difficulty accompanied him and yet he says those trials are light and momentary. Say, Paul, come on. But if we don't get it, we're missing the key that unlocks the understanding of these truths. And that key is the eternal weight, the eternal heaviness of glory, meaning it's just you're enshrouded by glory in eternity. You're, and glory is that sense of peace, that sense of joy, that sense of everything is right in all creation, that sense of wonder and awe. Glory is that wonderful state of everything being right. And in this life, we have maybe a glimpse on occasion of those times when when we just see into something beyond, we say there's a longing in our hearts that is triggered by a wonderful sense of joy, a wonderful sense of peace within us, but it, it, it points to something bigger, and that bigger something is the kingdom of God, the reign of God. And when we are experiencing that reign of God, no matter how heavy our trials, no matter how difficult our struggles, they will be light. The 70, 80, 90, 100 years we live on this earth will be momentary in light of eternity. The trials and struggles of this life will be like nothing compared to the glory of eternity. In fact, there is a sense in which the struggles that we experience will make eternity richer and deeper and more glorious. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says when um, he was a younger man and his children were, were young and um, he was enjoying being a father, enjoying his family, loving them deeply, he had a dream one night of one of those very vivid dreams that when you wake up, it still feels so real. And in that dream, his wife and children were killed. And in that dream, he grieved that loss. And when he woke up, his love and appreciation for his wife and children, when he realized they were still with him, was far greater than it had been when he went to sleep the night before. That is a, a somewhat helpful understanding 
of what it will be for us when we look back on the trials of this life and realize they are but a dream when we stand before the glory of God. That is the ultimate promise. That is the ultimate truth. But in this world, as Jesus said, we will have troubles. He has overcome the world, yes. And we will experience that glory as we are in him, yes. But in this world, we will have troubles. Obedience does not create a trouble-free life. Obedience might create more trouble, but through that trouble, God is glorified. Through that trouble, we are strengthened. Throughout Scripture, we find these passages that talk about the, the trials and struggles of this life and how they strengthen us if we allow them to. They can make us utterly useless if we allow them to do that, or they can make us strong as we trust God through them. Not always trust God to get us out of them, although there are times like that, but there are times when we trust God through them and we find God's strength. The Christian life is not trouble-free. And there's another theme that runs through this passage that I didn't see at first, but nearly every commentator and um, sermon I listened to or read about this passage deals with this, this concept, and that is God's sovereignty uh, as over against human responsibility. And we as Presbyterians, we stand on the side of God's sovereignty. God has a plan, and that plan will be worked out. And others stand on the side of God, of human free will and the responsibility that comes with that to make sure that we choose correctly. And if we go to one side or the other of that and think, well, God is going to make everything work out, so what's the natural, rational extension of that? What, what, what do you do? If everything is predetermined, if everything's going to happen the way it's going to happen, no matter what you do, well, when I was young and a little less or a little more foolish, I came to grips with this concept and I said, okay. So I sat on the couch and I said, God, what you're going to make happen will happen. If you want me to stand up, get me up. But in the meantime, I'm just going to wait for you to make happen what is going to have happen. I got bored and I didn't stand up until I decided to. And the mistake we make is to be on one side of this and say, I'm just going to wait for God to do what God's going to do, which is indeed a mistake. Or to stand on the other side of it and to say, it's all on me, it's all my responsibility, I have to make things happen, God says things should be a certain way and I need to put all of my effort into making them a certain way and if I fail, failure. If I fail, then it's all a loss. But biblical Christianity encourages us to embrace the mystery that it is 100% God's sovereign will that will be worked out, and it is 100% our responsibility. Don't try to fit that into your, your mind. It's not going to fit. But allow that mystery, allow that truth to guide you 
to realize that you are responsible to follow God, to be faithful to God, but God is responsible and will ultimately work it all out. As Romans 8.28 says, in everything God will work out for good, will work for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is working good. That doesn't mean that the next step you take, everything is the angels are going to start singing and the path is going to become clear. But ultimately, God is working for good. And the hard truth of that is that God uses challenging things to work for good. God uses griefs to work for good. God uses trials in our lives to work out for good. And good, in that sense, is not the absence of trial, the absence of struggle in this life. Good is God's ultimate purpose. And sometimes in this life, we get the privilege of seeing the good that's being worked out. That's a wonderful gift that God gives us. But sometimes, we have to trust. We have to believe that God will work good through whatever trial we might be undergoing. Os Guinness, in a sermon about this passage, quotes a British playwright who said, it's not death, it's life that defeats the Christian church. The church has always been equipped to deal with death. And that playwright was not a Christian, not a fan of Christianity, but critical of the church that seems to exist with the only hope being in death. And we can be confident facing death because we know that there is something better on the other side. But living this life, we can get very lost. Paul in Romans 12 says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable act of service because of what God has done for you. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, don't just hear the words, picture the words. Where is the sacrifice placed? Onto the altar. Now, if you place that sacrifice on the altar and do the typical thing of slaying the sacrifice, the sacrifice will not move. If you place a living sacrifice onto the altar, what's that sacrifice probably going to do? Get up and jump off. And don't we do that? We give ourselves to God. We give ourselves, we say, I want, I want to be faithful to you. I want to serve you. I, I give myself to you. We put our lives as, as a sacrifice to God. And then it gets a little challenging and we jump off. We go our own way. We say, I think my plan is better than God's. I'm going to follow it. But what Paul is saying is, as a living sacrifice, it's a constant choice to follow God. It's a constant choice to let God be God. And it's not always easy. Paul, in this passage, tells the people, don't don't leave this port. Because if you do, the ship will sink. And they leave anyway. 
Paul then tells them, go ahead and eat. We're going to run aground soon, but we will be saved. And then in a passage just after this one, the, the crew, who knows how to sail, are, are pretending to lower anchors off the one side of the ship, but they're actually gathering in the lifeboat to put it down and be the only ones rescued, they think. And Paul sees this and tells the centurion, the, the army commander on this ship who is responsible for the prisoners, um, if they leave, there will be no one here to sail this ship. And so the commander tells them, bring it back up, stay with the ship. And Paul says, I have had an assurance from God that we will be okay. The ship will perish, but we will be okay. Paul, when he was telling them not to sail from this harbor, knew that it was after the Day of Atonement, and you should never get on a boat after the Day of Atonement. So I looked up, when is the Day of Atonement? Well, it's early October. <laughs> Our cruise leaves on the 3rd. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was the Mediterranean, this is the Atlantic, we're going to be fine, don't worry, don't worry. But the point is that Paul says it is wise to use Human wisdom. We are responsible to use human wisdom to make our choices. Believing in God's goodness, so we make our choices in line with God's will, but God will ultimately work it all out. I, I, this is prob I, I know that this is not 100% theologically accurate because we are dealing with the, the mystery of God's sovereignty and human will that, that God knits together somehow in a wonderful tapestry that we don't really see until after this life is over. But I, I think about maybe the concept of a choose-your-own-ending book as an explanation for this. You know, you're reading the book, it says, if such and such, and there were a lot of um, computer games back in the 80s when I was around people who played them uh, that are the same thing. Choose this or choose this, and then you choose this, and you end up down this path, and then you have another choice to make, and you say, okay, I'm going to choose this, and you go down this path. And all of these choices end up somewhere. And the choices impact where you end up. But someone wrote all of that. Someone wrote the computer programming for those games that make you make choices, and they determined where it's going to end, how it's going to end. Someone wrote all of those endings when you read that choose-your-own-ending book. Someone knows how those things are going to work out, and maybe, maybe that's a, a helpful way to see this combination of God understanding human choice, calling us to make choices, but knowing the ending nonetheless. God writes history. And there's probably more to it than that. There's probably more mystery than that, that even though God writes all of the possibilities of the ending, God knows which way it's going to go. But in our limited understanding, maybe it's helpful. Because a problem that a lot of people have when they uh, try to embrace God's sovereignty, God's rule, is that they think, well, back in 1994, I made a choice. And that choice sent me off the path that God has for me. And I will never really be able to get back on the right path. Or maybe back in August. 
But that's not true, folks. God is with you even after you have made those wrong choices, those foolish choices, and God will accompany you throughout your life. And God doesn't say, oh, I had the story written for you and you got off track, so I'm done. God knows the alternate ending, the alternate path, and will be with you on that path. And all he calls you to do is to be faithful on that path. Even if you think you created it, even if you think you created your own struggle, he calls you to be faithful. And the wonderful truth is that God wins that life wins, that glory will be ours. Be faithful in this life. Be faithful believing in what happens after death, but not leaving it to then to be faithful to God. Be faithful to God now. In this world, you may have troubles, but God in Christ has overcome the world. Trust in him no matter what because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your plans and purposes for our lives. We thank you for those things that we can lift up before you and without hesitation give you thanks. Those things in our lives which bless us, and there are many of them, those relationships, those things. Our church community. But while we hesitate to do so, we also thank you for the trials. We thank you for the trials because we pray that you would use them to strengthen us, that we would be more and more faithful to you. And we pray that you would guide us through the path that you have for us and help us to trust in you, to trust in you. Not just as a word that we don't grapple with, but trust. To put our trust in your goodness and your grace when times are good and when times are challenging, because indeed, you are good, and you love us, and we may not understand the whys now, but one day we will, and it will all make sense. Lord, I pray for those in our midst who are struggling one way or the other, be it a health problem, or a spiritual problem, a problem of depression or anxiety, a problem of, of uh, disease or upcoming surgery or post-surgery, whatever it might be, Lord. I pray for your strength. I pray for your presence, your presence to be known to them, your love to be poured into their hearts, the hope that is ours in you to be theirs. And I thank you for your grace. Help us to rest in that grace, knowing your goodness, knowing your love. 
And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.